Hi, Bookstew viewers. So imagine that you're me, if you were lucky enough, and you're home on a night in January of 2019, and you get an email from Actors Studio of Newburyport where you've seen uh, many productions before. It's a nice, small, regional theater up in Newburyport, and any excuse to go to Newburyport, and especially I have to put in a plug for this new restaurant called The Drift Inn, which is awesome. So uh, the email reads, Dateline, Washington, D.C., late 1960s. John Matherson, a high-ranking Department of Justice official, has a son, James, who's a high school student in the middle of his make-or-break year of college applications. Fifty years later, James looks back as he grapples with his new role as a historian on PBS. The family's story reflects the political turmoil present in the U.S. in the 1960s, and pop culture must be acknowledged as a player. Music, drugs, changing moral perspectives all help to drive the plot. Plus, addiction and mental illness highlight the fragile line on which society balances its hopes and higher aspirations. Written by Lawrence Hennessy. So I rounded up a couple of friends. I sent them the email. I said, doesn't this sound great? Let's go. And we went. And after we saw this play, we, we, for, we were forced to go out and have drinks because we needed to talk about it. Because when you've had a truly amazing theatrical experience, you can't just go home and go to bed. It's something that, especially if you've been lucky enough to share it with people, you need to rehash. You talk about your favorite parts, um, what about it just gripped you. And we did, and I think it was at least two drinks worth. So today, I'd like to introduce you to the playwright of Crippled Inside, Lawrence Hennessy. Lawrence, I've been pursuing you for months <laughs> to get you to come on the show. Um, so let's, let's start with your background in playwriting and theater. You are the first playwright I've had on the show, so yeah. congratulations. Hopefully well, not the last. thank you very much. Thank you for those kind words, too. Yeah. I've been writing plays uh, probably for about 20 years. Uh, that I've been trying to get them produced. And uh, actually, for my own uh, enjoyment, uh, probably started writing plays when I was in college. That would be hmm. a half a century ago. <laughs> <laughs> Give or take, Give right? Give or take, yeah. So um, when you were growing up, well, I assume you were a reader because it would be hard to, be hard to imagine a playwright who didn't like to read. What's... Um, did you go to a lot of theater when you were a kid? Movies? What did What did you like? I'm a child of the '60s, uh, so yeah, I I would enjoy theater. But my entree into theater was TV, uh, oh. and and my entree uh, into uh, uh, theater would be watching things on television. And there were certain films that I saw. You know, you'd, I'd stay up and watch The Late Show. Uh, I, would, I was a night owl from the time I was about eight or nine years ah. old. And um, there were certain films that I would see uh, that struck me differently. I don't know what it was about them, but they just made a different kind of impression on me. And um, oh, I can remember watching uh, Come Back Little Sheba with Burt Lancaster and Shirley Booth Aww. and seeing the film. And just being moved in a way that, you know, no TV show would, got to me the way that, that film did. And films like, uh, you know, uh, oh God, Twelve Angry Men and Marty and, 
and, and not knowing anything about Reginald Rose or Patty Chayefsky or any of these people, just seeing these films. And uh, the film of Lillian Hellman's uh, The Children's uh, uh, Story, Children's Hour. So um, these are all plays that were made plays, into movies. Yes. Were you aware yeah. of that at I the time? I saw the inverse of it. I saw the movie and then, and then read the play. Ah. And, then, and then later when I had a chance, saw the play. And that's been my process. It's been entirely backwards. I'd love to say, oh, sure, I grew up going to theater. No, <laughs> no, no. I grew up watching things on TV. So did it make you want to go to the theater? Did you go to Absolutely. the theater at all when you uh, were like a teenager? Uh, yeah, from time to time, they had at the Sylvan Theater in Washington, D.C., they had the uh, summer Shakespeare plays. And from time to time, just an excuse to you know, go into Washington, D.C., I would, I would go to those. Um, and, you know, school plays and things like that. Uh, but for the most part, I think probably around 69, college, uh, I, uh, uh, first plays that I saw that, that really got to me were the Theater of the Absurd and UNESCO ah. and uh, things like that. And of course also, you know, I, 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 they're, they're lost, they're forgotten now, but the Firesign Theater. Uh, oh, was, I never forgot. Oh, good, good. Don't because crush that dwarf hand with those the, pliers. That's yeah? right. <laughs> I was. We uh, are dating ourselves. <laughs> those of you who are younger than us, too bad. Yes, they, they, <laughs> the the Firesign Theater uh, need to be kept alive. The same way the Marx Brothers and uh, Monty Python, you know, Monty Python need to be kept alive. Yeah, because that was great theater, and I didn't realize at the time they used to be sold like record albums, as you know. Yeah. And uh, they they started the uh, their first album was called Waiting for the Electrician. And it started because they were doing this stage. They lost all the power, <laughs> and the theater went black. And so they started improvising on stage while they were waiting for someone to come and fix the I, lights. I don't even know if there was improv before that. You know, improv seems to have been around forever at this yeah, point. Yeah. But, you know, I think it wasn't done like in theaters. I think it was just getting started yeah. around that time. Second City in Chicago. So, you know, when our parents say... Or, or they say, well, you know, before, you know, before us, there were no cell phones, there were no TVs, we grew up with radio, blah, blah. Yeah. People before us grew up without improv. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, uh, so you're in college and uh -huh. you're uh, still, you're thinking about improv plays. Were you a literary major in college? Yeah, I was an English major in college and uh, very briefly in grad school and then realized there was an awful lot involved. Uh, in terms of going to libraries and looking up, uh, you know, uh, original source material that I was way too lazy to do. <laughs> so that's when I started, you know, writing plays. And the, 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 the good part about that was, you know, you can make it all up. It doesn't have to be entirely accurate. Like I say about this play, a third of it's uh, stuff that actually happened. A third of it never happened, and a third is anybody's guess. Well, we'll get to that because that was one of the, when we were at drinks after the play, uh -huh. we argued incessantly and kept checking our phones about, because you, you said that or that part was in the program, yeah. and that was so intriguing, so uh -huh. I may put you on the spot and okay. make you tell a little right. bit. Okay, so then... So I may lie. Uh, no, no, you're not allowed to lie on books, Okay, I'm sorry. No lies I'm on sorry. Books um, So, okay, so you're in college, yeah. and has it... Had, had you, did you try writing any, any Oh, plays? sure, yeah. I was on my college radio station, so, of course, I was just ripping off uh, Firesign Theater routines <laughs> uh, uh, early and often, 
and uh, and little you know uh, absurdist kind of one act uh, types of things. And I thought they were very witty, very funny. And I think there might have been two. <laughs> Your or three. friends all laugh. Right? Uh, well, they yeah. Back at in those days, people kindness. would laugh. At, people would laugh at anything for various <laughs> reasons that we don't need to go into now. But everything seemed funny in, in those days. Yeah, a trip to Seven Eleven seemed funny in those days. <laughs> uh, I know exactly. Yeah, what we you're don't we don't need to, to go any deeper into that. Well, into you that. don't even have to be ashamed about it anymore. No, right? no, we're in that's right. 7-Eleven is legal now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, then what What did you do for a career once you got out of college? Oh, boy. Well, fast forward, I guess, uh, 35, 40 years, and uh, I got my day job, which is I'm a psychologist. And ah. um, so that's how I make my living as a, as a shrink. And uh, so this was a nice way. I, actually, when I started my private practice in Rockport, which is about 20 years ago, that's when I started writing plays. Uh, regularly, all, also. So, I'm, were you concerned about any of your patients bleeding into your plays? No, no. I, I made I made the point to always, if I was going to write about psychology or psychotherapy, to always focus on the psychologist, and and um, kind of take a dim view of the psychologist. I always made the psychologist sort of the emotional punching. Oh yes, which things. which I know I from your most recent play, yeah, which right. I saw yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so. Were you uh, writing plays all while you were working too? Were you doing it on the side? Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably for the last 20 years, I've been a couple of two or three different playwriting groups. And uh, yeah, I'm always uh, usually working on a play and I'm usually reading a play. Um, that's my. Reading a play, meaning a play that somebody else yeah, wrote? Yeah. Okay, yeah. tell us about your. Um, like you're a play, I know there were writers groups mm -hmm. and yeah. book clubs, and yeah. but I didn't know there were like playwrights groups that, that do you, is it like writers groups where you read and then people critique it? Exactly, yeah, the Playwrights Platform in Boston is one I've been with them for about eight years, and that's a group of playwrights but also actors, and ah. so uh, um, that you give them uh, something to work on two or three weeks in advance, would meet uh, you know, once or twice a month, and they would actually do staged readings of the material. So you get it, wow. and, and feedback, you get feedback. So that's, that. that's fascinating because to have a staged reading means you're hearing your lines spoken outside your head. Yes. So it yeah. must, it, obviously it would really help with recognizing what worked and what didn't. Absolutely. In fact, the uh, group at, in Newburyport, the Actors Studio in Newburyport, I'm in a group called the Weekend Writers Group, and uh, that's had been very helpful. I think about the last seven or eight plays I've done have all you know formed out of uh, feedback and, and trial and error at the hmm. uh, Weekend Writers Group. It's been very helpful for me. So what was the first play that you wrote that was ever produced? It was called In the Service of the Hittites. Oh. And that was, uh, I wrote that, I guess, uh, about 20 years ago. And that was done, uh, um, produced by Jimmy Tingle. You remember no Jimmy way, Tingle? Yeah. of course. Yeah. Jimmy Tingle's Off-Broadway. It used to be a theater in he Somerville, had in Somerville. In Davis Square, yeah. yeah. And um, what, you know, if you, the, I don't know, the impression I always had of Jimmy Tingle, I would see him as a comedian and see him on, on TV, and was this, that he was just a heck of a nice guy. And... He is a heck of a nice guy <laughs> out of nowhere. He'd never heard of me. He had uh, no reason to, uh, you know, try to advance my career at all. Um, but just, uh, you know, I, I gave him the script. I asked him if I could put my uh, play on there. Would he do? And yeah, 
And yeah. so did you hire the actors? And how? Well, it was, I was with another uh, writer's group in Newburyport again at the time, and uh, I just spoke to the teacher, uh, the, the guy who was an instructor of the group, and he said he would direct, and we wow. got some people there. And uh, that was my first time I had a, a, a play that was actually you know, put on stage and sold tickets. And, so what did that uh, feel like? Oh. While you were watching, did you, were you like cringing? Were you like, oh no, I should have done that or that? Uh, oh yeah, of course, of course, yeah. Uh, but it was, it was great. It was absolutely great. It was, I was hooked. I was hooked. Uh -huh. And uh, of course, I wasn't fully aware of the concept of rousting people to get them to come to your play. It's something I don't do now. You know, I have some shred of dignity and pride <laughs> left. But at the time, I had you know no qualms about calling up people and telling them I was going to have a play and please come and da So. Uh, and wait, so this was probably before cell phones, so you were actually like literally picking up yeah, your landline. That's right. Call. That's right. Which is what I still do when I call people. <laughs> yes, you did say you were a bit of a luddite. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's interesting because. Um, there's nothing, I've seen two of your plays, and there's nothing Luddite-y in, in your plays. Yeah. You don't, they don't bespeak to, uh, I hate cell phones, or I, you know. No, 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 the, uh, um, that's coming, that's, that's coming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we can expect a Luddite play. Absolutely. So, um, what now, you said you grew up in Washington. Yes. And Crippled Inside, is to me, is a very, very political play. Mm -hmm. Did do you feel there's a direct correlation between growing up in Washington and your politics and putting politics into a play? I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I would categorize my, uh, you know, my politics as sort of uh, uh, whiny, milk-toast liberal. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any room for those anymore. We've got to be no, strong. No, it's unfortunate. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Um, but this was also, uh, uh, you know, going through high school and starting college uh, uh, with, through the um, Johnson administration in Vietnam and then into the Nixon administration, which uh, at the time I thought things couldn't get any worse than that. Uh, uh, it's funny yeah. because um, you sent me a copy of the play and I noticed that the attorney general had been changed to Bill Barr. Had to <laughs> it change must it have three, been Jeff Sessions. We had to I change it three it. times in three years. <laughs> three yeah. Time. yeah. So um, about the play itself, so here, here I'm going to run into what you won't tell me, the third, what's true. John Matherson, by name, is not someone I could Google. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that there was no living person named John Matherson. There was no living person okay, named John so at Matherson. Least, and because to me, when we saw the play, the character was so absolutely vivid oh, and you know he was someone he was kind of a behind the scenes yes, advisor yes, so he's yes. not someone whose name you would have seen in the paper every day but you no, really just no. and he he's a man of such amazing contradictions yes here he is he's on the phone with you know he's he's ranking on robert kennedy uh -huh. he's on the phone with, he's, he, with uh very important people ramsey you clark right ramsey yeah. clark Attorney you only General. hear one side of it yeah and yet there he is <laughs> dealing with the minutia of his son's schoolwork yes yeah. so um yeah. i yeah. i guess what i would love to hear before i ask you to do a reading is First of all, you've got the father and the and the son who's a teenager, yeah. and then it evolves at various points into the son is now a father yes. and his own 
the structure is really intriguing. Yeah. How did Thank you, you? So I guess I'd love to hear the germs of how this particular play right. developed. Well, Matherson, the name Matherson, uh, loosely translated a kind of Irish Gaelic whatever as mother's son. Ah, and ah, uh, ah. so John Matherson is actually James Hennessy, my father. It was based on my, my father, who was an attorney, worked in the Justice Department. No. And um, uh, I don't know if I can say this because all bills are supposed to be written by the senators who sponsor them in the Senate, <laughs> but had a, a, a lot of influence in uh, the Immigration and Reform, uh, Reform Act no of kidding. 1965. You have the... Um, the pen that Lyndon Johnson used to sign it into law was given to my father, and one of the pens. And uh, I think my my nephew uh, was going to law school. I think, and uh, my sister gave it to my nephew. So, so if I googled your father, I'd find out things about him. Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so was that son? I never would have considered that it would have been someone you were related to. Yeah. So then does that mean that we can say that son James bears any resemblance to you? That's right, yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. That, was, wow. that was my story, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that part is a true story. That was true in uh, uh, right around Christmas vacation 1968, um, just after Nixon was elected. Uh, there's that space of time where there's this transition where right. the old uh, regime goes out and the new team comes in. And John Mitchell, who later became famous uh, for his hijinks Infamous. as attorney general, was part of the transition team. And uh, while the old Kennedy Johnson people were moving out, uh, my father was kept on because, as he said, he was the only person who really understood the Immigration uh, Reform Act because he had written a lot of it. So it, is your, fa your father is not still alive? No, my father passed away about 35 years ago. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry to hear yeah. that because I'm yeah. thinking, what would he think of what's going on with immigration now? Oh, I, I shudder to think. I mean, he, I he worked out of the spotlight on an <laughs> yeah. issue that was not nearly as divisive as it is now. I mean, yeah. I think back in those days, I think most people said, yeah, immigrants, sure, you know, we're, you know, we want... We want people to have a better life. We want democracy to be spread. We want give me your tired, your poor was not a controversial statement. No, at the no, time. there is that whole Statue of Liberty thing yep, there that yep, is part yep. of our national identity. Yep. And the other obvious fact that we all came from someplace uh, other than Native I mean, Americans. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, Wilmington. <laughs> <laughs> or Newburyport uh, yeah, or Rockport. Or, or Rockport, yeah. So, um, had it always been in your mind to write a play yes. about? Yeah. And was yeah. the first germ your father or your father, you and your father? I think that was it. They, the, one went with the other. I, I couldn't really separate the, the, the two of us, although we were very different people. Um, but um, that whenever I would think about writing my own story, his story came along with it. Whenever I thought about writing his story, my story came along with it. Oh, I'm so, just, I'm kind of yeah. heartbroken that he didn't live to see this. Mm -hmm. What do you think he would have thought of it? Ah, I think he would have harumphed his way through it. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet secretly been very, very proud. I hope he would have been. I really hope he would have been, yeah. All yeah. right, well, let's, I'm going to lead into the reading now because okay. you just mentioned the transition from one administration to another, mm -hmm. there was one person who seemed to withstand every transition from every <laughs> single administration to the other, 
and uh -huh. um, viewers, I'm going to ask Lawrence to read a part of this play that I think you'll really enjoy, and you will see who the figure is that I was just referring to. Okay, and in my best multiple personality, <laughs> I'll be doing two parts here, but I think you'll be able to catch which is which. And uh, just uh, to set this up a little bit, the son is usually kind of uh, baiting the father to get him to sort of rhapsodize and opine on different things to get him off topic, especially if or to get him away from the that's right, how he's doing in school in right? school or any <laughs> other thing he might be doing. So he's trying to uh, uh, divert him with this kind of crackpot uh, theory that's been going around. That um, well, I said he says there was this guy on the Joe Pine show who said that the mafia was behind the McCarthy campaign and. Well, what nonsense. You watch an idiot like Joe Pine? I'm just saying, look, trust me, as long as J. Edgar Hoover is running the FBI, the mafia will be free to do whatever they please. You mean J. Edgar Hoover is working for the mafia? No, no, but he'll never challenge them. Why not? J. Edgar Hoover is a coward, and like all cowards, he loves to bully people. He pretends he's hard at work keeping the country safe from communism, so he'll drum up a lot of headlines arresting some college professor or a poet or a beatnik and play Mr. Tough Guy. But that's only to distract the public from the obvious fact that the mafia is spinning way out of control. Well, then why doesn't Johnson fire him? Because Hoover's got something on everybody. Even the president? Especially the president. Congress, the Supreme Court, the State Department, the UN. Hoover's got dirt on anyone. And boy, does he love to flaunt it. How? Well, uh, this is difficult to talk about, but um, J. Edgar Hoover's like everyone in Washington who's hiding something. The man loves secrets. What's that supposed to mean? This is hard to explain, but a couple of years ago, there was a British actress by the name of B. Lilly. You may have heard of her. No. Well, she's a very funny woman. Anyway, she was cast in a Broadway play. So? Exactly. No big deal, right? Except someone from the actor's studio objects because no foreigner is supposed to come over here and take jobs away from an American. It even came up with your heroes, the Beatles. They're not my heroes. Well, some bird brain wanted to keep the Beatles out of the country after one of them said he was better than God. He never said that. All right, whatever. In B. Lilly's case, it turned out that J. Edgar Hoover was a big fan. So he's paying very close attention to how everything is being handled. Anyway, I made a few calls and collected on a few favors, and everything's settled. Or so I thought. Why? What happened? Hoover arranged a meeting at headquarters for Beatrice Lilly and myself so she can thank me face to face. Okay. So I get to his office, but Hoover is nowhere to be found. They tell me, don't take too long. Just tell Miss Lilly how nice it is to meet her, let her thank you, and then excuse yourself. Well, I enter the office, and there's B. Lilly sitting next to Hoover's desk. I introduce myself, and she smiles and thanks me in the strangest British accent I've ever heard in my life. I tell her that I hope that she'll enjoy her stay in America and what an honor it is to meet her, and then she nods and thanks me, and that's that. Or so I thought. Now, what do you mean? When I get back to my office, there's a message for me from Beatrice Lilly. Her manager had left a number for me to call in New York so she could thank me. Only the number is for her hotel in New York. Well, then, who is the woman in Hoover's office? The woman in J. Edgar Hoover's office was J. Edgar Hoover. Maybe we'll leave it there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 
which third is that? I mean, we know, we know, I got, I, I got to do a gotcha on that because we know that about Hoover's reputation yeah, as yeah. a cross-dresser for yeah, sure. Right, yeah. Is this something, okay, I won't put you on the spot, but no, is this something you, you made up or is this something this that... This was totally made up. Oh, okay. Totally made well, up. Well, damn. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> it makes a great story, yeah, though. Yeah, I mean, out of yeah. anybody to pick Beatrice Lilly, like, she was uh, really kind of extraordinary and totally yeah. forgotten about Oh, yeah, these another, days. another one of those... But you can see how J. Edgar Hoover would have loved her because, you know, she was someone he could easily emulate. Yes. You know, she wasn't really young and yes. gorgeous or anything like yeah, that. So. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is such a great story. So, yeah. um, so there's the sun, mm -hmm. and when at what point did you decide to grow the sun up and change the timeline? So you were looking at, in fact, the play starts out with the sun doing the narration of a PBS yeah. documentary, right? Yeah, yeah, and that was the part that I played in this the uh, uh, when we uh, did it in Newburyport. Um, that was what, you know, I always want to have some kind of chorus, some kind of, you know, character that's going to keep you apprised of what's going on. And I thought this probably would be best told from his perspective because all of these things were kind of uh, predicting what's going to happen to this guy. Bad things are going to happen. The father's constantly saying, you know, he, he's, he's sort of the Cassandra, you know, that I see bad things on the horizon, bad things are going to happen. And all of these things that happen to the son, the father says, you know, this kind of thing could consume you. You're not a dabbler. This is the kind of thing that could lead to your demise. And the son, you know, takes it personally. And uh, sure enough, 50 years later, he's about to attain celebrity uh, status and he, um, he loses it. But that was, there was kind of uh, definitely like mental illness in kind of that ran through the family, but you yep. chose to bring it out at different times. Yes, yeah. Uh, the, the, the other play uh, that I, I did a play called 96 Tears, and that was about my mother's history in terms of uh, dealing with uh, her mental illness. Um, and the father, I, I thought, in that play kind of got short shrift, so I mm -hmm. thought he deserved the... Uh, the Lawrence Hennessy treatment a little bit too. <laughs> so um, I I did think I recognized you as the actor when I you know later when we met and yeah. we were corresponding. How often do you take roles? Do you only take roles in your own play or in others' plays too? This was it. Okay. This was it. Yeah. How, how did you? You, how did you were that? lucky enough to see me in my one and only performance. <laughs> how did you feel about that? Very nervous uh, and just impossible to concentrate. And all the things, I'm not an actor, and I proved it, I think, night after <laughs> night. All the things that actors are supposed to do uh, and all the things that actors are supposed to not do, uh, I did all the things they're not supposed to do. Oh, You're well, supposed it, to be actively involved. All I could think of is don't blow this line, don't blow this line, don't forget your line. Um, well, you can't, you can't say, I won't agree with you because mm -hmm. I think the performance with all of you, and it was so seamless that I never would have guessed that you were not an experienced actor. Oh, so, so you're not going to Hollywood next or no, to Broadway, huh? No, I'm definitely not, no. So what's, um, what's, are you working on a new play now? Oh yeah, always. Uh, this play, uh, uh, Crippled Inside, is gonna be done in, um, in Concord, New Hampshire in January. Uh, we're doing uh, on the 17th, and then we're gonna be in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, for three weeks starting on the 24th of January through February 9th. All right, well, I'll make sure that I put all the information up because 
Um, Books do viewers, I cannot tell you how much you would enjoy this play if you went to see it. And of course, Concord and Portsmouth are beautiful this time of year, any time of year, even in the winter, it's a chance to get out of Wilmington for the winter. So um, Lawrence, thank you so much for thank coming you. on Books Do. Um, as a, a, a first episode with a playwright, I think this is going to be outstanding, and I look forward greatly to seeing more of your plays. So well, thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Books Do viewers, uh, I hope that you enjoyed my uh, inaugural playwright show, and uh, next up will be Stephen Sondheim. Only kidding. Okay, <laughs> have a good night, everybody. <laughs>